0: Making movies is really tough To get it all done, you gotta know your stuff First you write a script, then you raise some cash Shoot the film, then you're down in a flash So here's some things that you need to know It's my first feature
1: Hello and welcome to My First Feature I'm your host, Ethan Cushing I'm a director and producer working in Los Angeles And this is the podcast where each week I interview a new filmmaker about the experience of directing their first feature film And with me today is writer-director Jack Perez Hi, Jack Hi, Ethan How How are you? you? Good Um, So we met... Where do we meet? We met at uh, YouTube. Well, we met
0: at, uh, we met at Berman Braun. <laughs> That's, That's right. Yeah, yes. when Berman Braun got the contract to make
1: premium YouTube content. That's right. And you were in charge of uh, a channel there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I was my. It was my probably one and only uh, attempt at becoming an executive. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I was asked to help create Cinefix, which right. is the movie channel.
1: Movie YouTube channel.
0: Yeah. So it was. It was an opportunity to get. Uh, as they say, on the other side of the desk, sure. which is actually not an enviable, enviable position, because every time anybody came in to pitch something, I was constantly reminding them, I'm not one of those guys, I'm right. not one of those horrible
1: executives, right. actually, I'm cool, I get I'm, it. I'm you. Yeah. I'm you, I'm
0: you, I'd been there. Uh, so it, was a, it gave me some insight on, on how right. that side of the business works, even right. though, you know, I, I pretty much knew what it was. Yeah, and you're like, ah, uh, this is not for me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not exactly. Right. And, yeah. then we,
1: and then uh, you left, that company, and then I got an opportunity to produce it's not a commercial. I I think in the biz technically that's called a podbuster. Is that I what it is? You know I, I actually yeah.
0: I thought it was a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I mean it, it, it might as well cool. be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: technically it's called a podbuster, which is basically a fancy word of saying they shoot something that looks very similar to the show so you're not so you don't fast forward oh, past so the first commercial. Oh, so it, it
0: slips into yes. I understand. Yeah. Yes. so it's it's not a break like here we now we go to right. commercial. Right. So you watch
1: it. Yeah, so we did this thing for uh BattleBots and Pizza Hut. Pizza uh, Hut, right? <laughs> which was which was super fun and that's how I that's where I got to see you direct That's where, yeah, that's where you were producing Uh, and I was directing. And it turned out great. It was really fun. Yeah, it Um, was fun. And I think something you said, maybe on set or maybe in post, that kind of stuck with me, actually, uh, I don't know if you know this, was you were sort of offhandedly talking about a feature film you had done. And Uh you said, yeah, I just had to make that feature film and get it out of my system and like rip the Band-Aid off of getting a first feature film made. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but that always stuck with me. And then I had another conversation with another guest I've had, Nate Acheson. Who kind of had a similar philosophy, right. and then that kind of got the ball rolling of making this show, mm-hmm. which is everyone has to start somewhere. Everyone has to make a first feature film, uh, presumably, and right. and then we'll get into this. But like, what is the philosophy in terms of doing that? You know, because I think for myself as a filmmaker, I have I'm a very kind of perfectionist. Uh, all my ducks have to be in a row. Right. I want to make this magnum opus right of out of the gate. I want to make you know. But that's not how life works, and and unless you're, I don't know, Colin Trevorrow, uh, <laughs> maybe, nah, that's not a good example. But you know what I mean. Like sure. you make a friggin' slam dunk out of the gate, like you have to rip that bandaid off and do. That's right. I don't know, get your training wheels, kind of. So yeah. Anyways, that's all to say. So you directed a film called America's Deadliest Home Video. Right. Right. That was that was my first feature. In 1993.
0: Uh, actually, it was earlier. It came it came out in 93. It was actually made in 91. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um so we'll definitely get to
1: that, okay. but but I want I wanted to know another thing about you that I think is different from the other people I've interviewed so far. Yeah. I don't know what the order of these come out, but um you you are a professional director making money sometimes for things you direct, which is kind of a white whale. Some some (laughs) money sometimes, yeah. So I was wondering if briefly you could tell me about where you're at now in your career as a director, what you've done, uh, you've done some things of note that I'll let you describe. Sure, sure. Um, So yeah. Well,
0: it's, yeah, I've kind of had one foot in the independent world uh, my whole career. You know, I I guess it's going on 25 years almost of of doing this. and. I mean it's funny because I was just having lunch with some friends who have been in the business with me about as long and it, you know when you get a bunch of filmmakers together who've been in the business they they all tend to whine you know they commiserate <laughs> right. and it's all about today's conversation was 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 very similar to others we had which is all about the the pain of loss of creative control and like one of my friends is a writer and he just worked on a big uh, studio feature, and he was talking about how the development executive was co- was from the very beginning was trying to sabotage him and take credit away and say it was his movie, and wow. and and they took the movie away and rewrote it and all those things that you hear. And for me, something comparable happens on a studio level or on a network level in that you generally don't have uh, directors, uh, you don't have final cut, right, and if. And truthfully, I feel like everything I do as a filmmaker is really in the service of this final result. You talk about this, a perfectionist. Well, you know, all the all the meetings and writing and 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 no matter how it goes on set, has nothing to, doesn't mean anything unless you can uh, maintain that control through to the end. Right. And ordinarily, uh, when you're being paid, you don't have that. So that final thing, which is really what you've been driving towards gets manhandled often, and Mm. that causes a lot of pain if you care about the project or it's personal. So what I've tried to do is to make the more personal projects independently, and I kind of keep that track going, and that sort of keeps my soul. the
1: one-for-them, one-for-me model? Well, or not
0: even, I don't think they would do one for me. (laughs) Right. But I do one for them and me that is, I guess, more of a a piece of work or a job. Uh, Not that I don't work as hard, I do, but, Generally, the the scripts are not...
1: As You're answering per- to someone else who's paying yeah, your bills, you. Yeah, know.
0: usually it's a script that's either been started by somebody else or it's an idea from somebody else, and I come on board either to write and direct or direct that right. idea. And that is fun and joyful, and I'm very lucky to have been able to do that for two decades. But I also realize that uh, the smaller and even, even smaller budget independent movies are the ones that are... are uh, More important to me because I am able to maintain that kind of control. So, you know, like uh, I would say probably the last movie I made that was uh, of that independent spirit was a movie called uh, Some Guy Who Kills People. Right. But, you know, since then I've made a couple of movies for Sci Fi Channel which paid the bills but are not, you know, but still fall victim to that sort of control. Now, one of those films.
1: is a different director is credited?
0: Oh well, for that yeah. Film. Well, I did a yeah. I did a movie called uh, Are you talking about Megashark? I want you to say the words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to say. It's funny because I, I had the same reaction when I was given the the, the idea: uh, Megashark versus giant octopus. Yes, right. Which is sort of um, responsible. I guess I don't know if responsible is the right word, but but responsible for the sort of um, rash the... of uh, giant shark movies. Or <laughs> you know, I always say that if I had been paid if I got a penny for every frickin' shark movie that came out in the wake of that, um, that I would be fairly wealthy. And sure. of course, that was a movie that was done totally, like, work for hire, like, here's... Like, literally, like, I got paid... F- you make this. Yeah, I mean, I, and I made it at a time when I was... Uh, I was really hoping to make another movie, a, a more personal movie, and the financing fell apart at the last minute. And I was in a position where I was like, oh, my God, I don't... I, I gotta pay the rent. What's What's going on? And I had made a movie for... One movie for the asylum, who were the yeah, producers yeah. of that movie uh, prior, and I called them up, you know, and I said, What do you got? And they said, Well, we got a we got like a dragon movie and we got this giant squid thing. Can you which one are you interested in? Right. And so I was a long time fan of Godzilla movies hmm. and 1950s atomic mutation. Movies, so I grabbed the giant, it was squid, it was giant squid. Got it. And I wrote that thing in a couple of weeks, and we shot it. And
1: oh, so you, you wrote the trip as well? I wrote it as well. Okay. But I wrote it under a
0: pseudonym. It's funny, and the reason why I did it under this Ace Hanna, right. which is actually a character in one of my favorite movies from the 50s called Vera Cruz, which is a Western. <laughs> uh, and there's a reference to this Ace Hanna character who's a gambler. Anyway, but the reason I took the name was because I was confident that even this silly movie was going to be so uh, cut up by the powers that be, uh, that I decided that rather than suffer through m- putting my name on and having people think that I was responsible for some of these right. choices, I said, you know what? I'll just put a pseudonym. I didn't know that it was actually going to be, uh, become sort of like a, a little mini- Something. Something, yeah. and pop culture thing, and uh, so I, but of course IMDB finds out who you are anyway. Sure, So it, sure, doesn't, sure. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, that's great, and then, um, so you, like like I said, you have had uh, some success directing things. Uh, like I said, the dream of receiving money for your art. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and you've always actually struck me as a relatively, I think, confident director. Uh-huh. Uh, someone who knows what they want and uh, has a vision. But there was a time when you were little baby Jack Perez. Yeah. Um, take me back there to when did you first... I. I could be wrong. I get the sense that you were like born with a Super 8 in your hand.
0: Well, I was one of those kids for sure. I was definitely one of the Super 8 kids. I, I said that the only thing that, that sort of J.J. Abrams got right about Super 8 was actually that world. Right. We forget about the monster stuff, just the, the world of little kids making their movie. Obviously, now everybody, you know, rolls out of the cradle with a DSLR in their hands. <laughs> but but the, the idea of having to borrow a Super 8 camera from your dad because those were the people that had the Super 8 cameras or your parents were mm-hmm. making home movies. Yeah, so that was one of those guys that drafted my sister into making my own little monster movies and stuff. Um, but, and I was, I didn't think I was particularly good at it as a kid, as a 10 or 12 year old. I just was the only thing that I felt I could do. I was any good at, I wasn't yeah. good sports or anything like that. I wasn't interested in that. I love movies and I figured I'd give it a shot. It was only until I went to film school that I, uh, started to get better and realized that there was a methodology and there was a, a philosophy and a reason why you shot things a certain way or why you might use a certain angle over another or move the camera or and suddenly got exposed to a lot of movies other than the ones I was raised with and I realized that uh, I could get better so my, my development from like a, the freshman in film school at NYU to when I was a senior was like I thought was astronomical. Wow. It's just because of the the times at bat, because at film school, that's one of the benefits is that you're constantly doing assignments. So you, if you have any uh, ability, you're going to hopefully get better with the right, right feedback and the right input from, from professors and so forth. Um, but as I was, you know, I was always conscious that I would get out of film school and make a feature. That was what you're supposed to do, right? Okay. And... Um, and that idea of a feature weighed very heavily on my mind as this mountain or marathon that just seems so huge. I mean, just the length. Because when you're making little three-minute movies, a ninety-minute movie or a two-hour movie seems unbelievable, un- uh, just just insurmountable. Yeah. Uh, and I was really scared. So much so that I was so worried about it that that I think between my. S- Freshman and and sophomore year or during the summer, I actually got a bunch of people together, and we tried to make a Super 8 feature. We wow. actually wrote a script, and we got some people and we cast it in New York with some actors, and we shot a Super 8 sound feature. And this probably was in the summer of 1985 uh, or maybe 86, just to see if we could do it, right. just if we could last. You do know, we have the stamina. yeah. Do we have the stamina? Yeah. Like, can we actually do it? Uh, and it was one of those things where it was Super 8 sound, so actually the magnetic soundtrack was actually part of the of the film stock and trying mm-hmm. to cut mm-hmm. that, and we were trying to transfer it later to, to three-quarter-inch tape to cut it linearly, and we didn't have the chops yet, or I didn't have the chops yet, to finish it right. or be a finisher, right. but we got it in the can, so at least that initial hurdle had been crossed. Yeah. And I can't remember how many days we did it in. I think we did it in two weeks or something like that um, so but that, that was really born out of just the worry of can I even do this can I do mm-hmm. a feature yeah and it wasn't until obviously a couple of years after I graduated from NYU that I, that I did my first legitimate feature America's Deadly Something
1: right yeah something you said there struck a chord with me I feel like I've walked off short film sets like a day shoot mm-hmm. and fallen into bed and being like how did Joss Whedon make The Avengers? You know, like, <laughs> how, how do you how do you last that long? It's so exhausting.
0: Well, it depends. You know, it depends on the schedule. You know, I, I remember a buddy of mine who came up with Sam Raimi. And Sam Raimi was the executive producer on Hercules and Zeno, which was one of the first things that I did for money. Right. And I remember hearing about a, a Passover that he went to uh, while he was doing Spider-Man 2 or 3. And my friend Josh was at this... Passover seder, and he was looking at Raimi who was going into day, you know, like 180 of Spider-Man three, and just the the kind of just just that he would be kind of ground down. Now that's, but you know, I wonder how much of that has to do with just going to work every day. Because when sure. you're when you're working on a on a 200 million dollar movie, you're shooting, you know, two pages. If you know, you should have seen a. On a park bench, <laughs> right. and then you maybe you you see somebody crossing the, red, the street. The machine moves very slowly, and in a way, as even though even on this last show I did, this last movie I did for Sci-Fi, I had you know I had one day that I my average page count a day was nine. Wow! And this was this was action nine. Wow! Like this was not just like hanging around having a conversation. How many the, cameras? One. Just one. Camera. And and actually, I they asked me that. They said, "Do you want to?" Because on these shows, you know, it was like a twelve day schedule. They said. Uh, do you do you want two cameras? Would we had a lot of, and to me, talk about precision or lack of precision. Running two cameras is like you know you might as well just like it's like it's like having the setup at Walgreens. It's like surveillance cameras. It's like you can <laughs> you're not you're just going to hose it down and get stuff that you can cut together. But I'm very much like one shot for one moment, mm. and um, and that's the only way to do it. So I single camered it. I would never have been able to do it as a young baby Jack. Mm-hmm. I only was able to accomplish the nine pages a day having been been through that sort of meat grinder sure. but when I did um, America's Deadliest Home Video it was a it, it was like a it was a interesting opportunity because and I don't know if you want to get yeah, into yeah let's it. segue
1: into that so so first can you just give me a quick you know, give me the elevator pitch of of the yeah, film?
0: Yeah, well, it's hard to... You know, it's funny. Right now, it's considered sort of the granddaddy of the found footage genre. Right. I mean, going back again, this is 1990, so very little... Uh, very few films had sort of explored this idea of, a, of, of a, a, a verite or a documentary look where the camera is a participant in the story. I mean, obviously... Most people know Blair Witch Project, going all the way through to Cloverfield and so forth. But in 1990, there had only been a handful of movies that had experimented with this. One was a movie called 84 Charlie Mopic, which was actually a Vietnam movie hmm. that was seen from the point of view of a combat cameraman. Uh, the whole movie. Clever. And I was taken by that movie because I thought this was a very innovative approach. Um, that movie was probably the singular influence on me because when what basically what happened was is I met a guy, and... Uh, he was a guy from Wisconsin who was trying to come out to L.A. He lived in Wisconsin. He would drive out to L.A. and would basically try to get jobs as an actor. He figured the only way he was really going to get a job as an actor is if he financed the movie of and he cast himself in it. But he wanted someone to write and direct an exploitation movie. And this is still during the boom of VHS video stores hmm. where a lot of low-budget indie stuff could find a place on a shelf. So he said, look, here's what he met. We talked, and he said... Uh, if you write and direct this, I can't pay you, but you can write and direct your own feature, and I'll pay for the movie on my credit cards. I think at the time it was he had seven thousand dollars on credit cards. Wow. And but I'm in it, you know, right? Uh, Not negotiable, right? I'm in it, but and it has to have, you know, the requisite elements of an exploitation movie because we want to sell it right to the video store. So it's got to have you know some nudity and violence every five minutes and gore, and it should be something like that. Sure. But but even given those sort of parameters, it was very exciting because I could come up essentially with anything, and so at the time I was very taken by this um, this idea. Of, oh, and here's the other reason: uh, we had to shoot it on standard definition video, mm. which was not unusual at the time. But it's certainly coming from film school and having worked on 60 millimeter and black and white, and very very much a cinephile the look. Then of Then going it, to slum it in yeah, VHS. Yeah, 30 fps. You know, uh, high eight which was the state of the art at that time, right. to me looked like shit. And mm-hmm. I was like, I cannot make a movie in this manner. So that
1: was like a production consideration to, or artistic consideration That's to right. make it work for you. That's
0: right. For me, it was like, this is going to be my first feature, and yet I have to make it with this uh, handicap, which uh, a visual handicap, which I was not comfortable with. And I think that coupled with the, I- the idea that, as, as we all do, if we're going to come out of the gate with something, it should be something singular, something nobody's done before. You, know, sure. you have that attitude. So I figured, well, why don't I try to take this this new concept, a relatively new concept, and apply it to an exploitation movie? And I came up with this idea. I'm sorry, this is, the, this is not the elevator pitch. You're there. Pitch. You got it. This is the elevator yeah. pitch going up. Knock at Towers. Yeah, exactly. Towering Inferno. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it basically is a, a, a camcorder enthusiast who documents everything in his life, who's uh, abducted by a small band of... Um, of criminals who decide to use him to document their criminal exploits. So the leader of the gang, played by the producer, is an egomaniac who, who accidentally who finds this in guy- In the film. In the film. <laughs> accidentally finds uh, this guy filming one of their crimes, kidnaps him and says, okay, you're going to like make us famous, like Bonnie and Clyde. You're going to film us. And so that was the sort of device- the story device that allowed you to have everything be funneled through right. the point of view of this guy's camera. Right. And it was Danny Bonaducci who, as the years passed, probably fewer people know, but Danny Bonaducci, who was an original member of the Partridge family and then a radio DJ. And uh, he was available. My producer got him, uh, but he was available mostly because he was out of work at the time and was going through some court stuff. And we paid him to come to Wisconsin to wow. be in this movie. Right. And, and he was the star. He played the... He played the camcorder enthusiast. So Yeah,
1: so I wanted to... That was my first question because, again, I'm sure as a young filmmaker, you're getting to make this film and you have a quote-unquote star. You know, you, right. have, you have... I mean, you have no, a name, No, you know, for like, sure. No, no, he was definitely... We're going to be a little jaded now, but... No, you know, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, for me, it was
0: like, okay, this is a guy who I've seen. I grew up watching him on he TV. He was on television, yeah. He was on TV. I was a fan of the Partridge family. To me, he was a legi- sure. legitimate actor. Now, you I know? wonder,
1: did you... Was he the role of the camera enthusiast? And now in the film, you know there's a lot of like Cloverfield where TJ. Miller is the is the camcorder uh-huh. guy. Uh, he's off camera a, a whole right, lot. A lot And, of the and time. I imagine production wise and budget wise, he's not actually there on those days when he's not on camera. right when he's right. Out, quote unquote operating and
0: right. So, although, actually for some of that stuff, um, for some of that stuff I actually did have him operate. Oh, it's at, at certain times, but you're right. I mean, the thing was is that he was there. Uh, you know, it wasn't one of those things where he, you know, was off in his trailer or whatever because there wasn't any. <laughs> sure. Uh, so he was there for the length of the shoot. But yes, there were a number of shots that we did where certainly he didn't have to be there. And later we just post dubbed his
1: off screen right. dialogue. Right, That's right, right. right. That's right. Right. So how did you go about uh, conceiving of, again, this is, if you've seen Blair Witch and you've seen Cloverfield and mm-hmm. you've seen any of those uh, Project X or whatever. Right. Uh maybe it seems kind of silly now, but yeah. how did you go about conceiving that, um, the camera moves and right. the, and, do you know what I mean? No, no, I know exactly it's what you question, mean. But. Well, you
0: know, it's actually a great question because again, I, I'd come off like when I was at NYU, I really, um, and I've remained this way enamored with the power of, of, of the, and the beauty of an image of a film image and the, and the strength of a composition and, and all of those things that, uh, you know that uh, that uh, that precision filmmakers, whether you know Stanley Kubrick being the obvious example, or Scorsese, or anybody who is about the power of the image, crafting that image. And so I spent almost all film school trying to get to a place where I could do that. Uh, even my final thesis film or whatever was very much about a very heavily stylized, lit, uh, choreographed um, visual design movie. And here I am now making my first um, feature, which by my own choice. Is, is, everywhere is the opposite or, and, of yeah. that it's, it's it, in fact it became about can i choreograph the movie to have the artifacts of a documentary or of a of a amateur videographer uh
1: who was your cinematographer and what was that relationship like
0: he was a guy that i had went to film school with so again it's like you know he was he was somebody that i had formed a relationship with when i was in film school his name was rob Lascalzo, and and he was a really strong cinematographer but it was funny he uh He was actually more concerned about the style of the movie too, because here was somebody even more concerned with beauty. Yeah, with beauty, and and again, the lighting was such that you know we had to uh, we had to affect the lighting in a way that looked uh, non professional, that looked like it wasn't lit. You know, we we lit the scenes, but they were lit in a way that was um, uh, ugly at times because that served the story. It's funny because a buddy of mine, Sean Maurer, who shot a bunch of my subsequent movies, had to do that on a movie he shot. Uh, called black dynamite which was a you know a, a homage or send-up of exploitation movies and again scott sanders who directed that was like well we can't really make this we can light this to look fantastic but those movies don't look that way so let's light it shittier <laughs> let's light it in the way that they did which is look at the sloppiness and 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 study that and make it mm. equally sloppy mm. so so part of that was the uh was the challenge of designing that movie is to look to to look that way? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I I also want to know. I mean, like you said, this is on the credit cards of the actor mm-hmm. uh, you shot in Wisconsin, right? Um, was that a function of the actor being from Wisconsin? Yes. And then you you for a low budget feature film, you are you man, the company moves and the locations you're a lot at of locations. are a <laughs> lot. I mean, you're at a gas station, you're at a convenience stores, you're at a video store, mm-hmm. you're in a hotel. How did you get all those places? And did you all just, I'm interested in kind of like that gorilla. No, no absolutely. You know.
0: Well, I always say that, well, with the reason we did it in Wisconsin, Racine, Wisconsin, which I'd never been to, was the producer, Mick Weinhoff was from Wis- Wis- Racine. And that was part of his pitch. He said, well, look, uh, in Racine, small town, uh, my dad used to be the sheriff there. Uh, no permits needed. Yeah, it's like no permits. Everybody will give us locations for nothing. Uh, everyone, you, we'll walk in there, and and because we have Danny Bonaducci and we're making a feature. It'll be like the Beatles came to town. And I remember, funny enough, I took a photograph of a of a newspaper in the box because I didn't think anybody would believe it. It was actually in the cage, you know, that you get yeah, it from. Yeah. It was on the day that the Soviet Union like officially collapsed. We were making this movie. And literally, you were we, we, were the, we were the main headline. It was <laughs> like, you know, Hollywood comes to Racine. Oh. And then like a little banner underneath it was like, yeah, Soviet, Soviet <laughs> Union collapses. You know, so, so he was right about the... Uh, so, I always say, you know, like if you're going to make your first feature, make it anywhere but LA or New York or anywhere where people. You do think that. Yeah, well, I do. And I, I say that. I, I say that to, to my students. I say, look, you know, like don't be in such a rush to come to LA just because everybody, you're going there. It's, it's, if you have a base of operations anywhere but where you can feel psychologically, emotionally comfortable and you can get a lot of locations and, and for free or favors, then that's to your benefit. You know, you, come LA is you know LA is like one big you know pimp that you and you're there to, they want they want to they're selling you and if you come to LA with nothing and you try to get that's that can sometimes be harder than coming to LA with a feature that you've already You've already made from wherever you grew up or wherever you have the support to make a feature. So I was actually very lucky. I didn't know that. I came to L.A. you know, with my short film in my hand yep. and couldn't get arrested like everybody. And fortunately, I met this guy who said, come to Wisconsin, let's make a movie. And when I came back, having made this movie, and again, it's a different time because now it's, it's a lot easier for a lot more people to make features. But at the time, it was like, oh, this guy actually... Went out and made a feature. I'll, perception is suddenly different. He's not just the kid from film school. He's a kid right. from film school now as a feature. So, right. so that assisted me in in getting some early work. Whereas if I hadn't, it made did, it, and yeah, it did it totally did because it didn't get me a feature. Yeah, but it got me a job being hired as a director on behind the scenes documentaries and things like that. And um, a producer saw the feature and said, "Wow, maybe we can make this into a TV show." and, kept me on making these behind the scenes documentaries which paid the bills and he he was he owned a company that made these things and um so it, it definitely helped me get off the ground even in a right. small way uh, but again it's funny i think about it it's it's it was the independent movie that was a non-hollywood production that made the difference and, and in a way i keep thinking about that you know even now hmm. I, having just wrapped this job for money. And again, it wasn't for a lot of money, but it paid the bills. I'm thinking about the next one that will be independently financed so that I can just go off and make it and not have to deal with the nonsense that accompanies mm, it. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so, so anyway, I danced around. I've kind of got off point, but that's, that's,
1: that's how so started. So do you believe, I mean, it sounds like you do, but, but to be clear, like, do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that a filmmaker <laughs> this is something I wrestle with all the time. Sure. You know, is a is a talented filmmaker with a with a wide swath of short films and web series in their pocket the same as that's another talented filmmaker with all those plus a feature film, regardless of the quality of the feature film, like that ninety minute running time, does that put him or her in another category in the eyes of the powers that be.
0: Perhaps I mean again, it's a different time. I mean, if you have made uh, if you've made a fifteen minute web series that's got eighty trillion hits, that in and it of itself has a different perception to a sure. to a money person. Um, so I don't know if it holds true in the same way uh, as it did. Um, I do think it matters if you're trying to get paid to be a director of a feature film. That you've done it before because as you know every producer is afraid of every reason not to hire you. yeah yeah they, they, you know so if you're gonna if you are gonna hire a guy who's made one before versus a guy who hasn't made one before the producer is gonna hire the one that did it before just because that cuts down on the chance of failure right you know that said you know it, it, obviously there are plenty of very talented people who could do it I mean that's why it's almost like it's a joke it's like if you want to make a feature you want to be a feature director you almost have to make a feature <laughs> you know what right. I mean it's egg, like yeah. it's like yeah it's, it's uh, and that's sort of what we did you know uh, I don't think it's the only route but I do think that having done it it's you are you have run the marathon at least once right so it it in somebody's eyes you can you can you can you can manage it right. you know they they know you've been able to manage right. it
1: right at, at, at the very least you have the stamina to be on set and shoot something for you know right. 15 for, 20 uh, days exactly, or whatever exactly exactly interesting yeah. yeah
0: and you have to be able to i mean more importantly i think i think it has less to do with the actual number of days because truthfully it's not like it is work but it is you're not out there digging yeah. a ditch uh, and I think most filmmakers realize that there's no difference between making a short film that you make over two days and a feature film that you make over 20 days right. or however many days. It's just that you just keep keep making it. Right. You, just more this, you just do the same thing just on the next day. Right. Uh, uh, but more importantly is being able to uh, craft, I hate to use that word, but more be able to make a story that that works over that length, to be able to manage that length from a narrative perspective like... Making something, you know, that has pace and 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 holds your attention over three minutes is different from making something that holds somebody's attention over ninety or two hours. Very true. So I think that that's a a skill that you have to, that you develop once you've done it because you realize oh you know now it's this is flabby and this does it's falling apart at the mm. forty five minute mm. point and you start to learn a lot about editing and you start I learned more about I learned more how to write actually I became a better writer once I had had. More experience in the cutting room on features, realizing, oh, all this stuff that we shot doesn't is is redundant or right. it's slowing the movie down, right. and and it actually reverse engineered my my writing hmm. a little bit, um, but. Uh, Yeah, so anyway, I'm sorry.
1: No, no, that's great. I want to play a clip here. I know we're a little late here, but I want to show a play clip of uh, Danny Bonaduce's character uh, filming at that kind of Grand Canyon-y sort of Uh location, is what I kind of thought of it. Uh, And he catches the the guys in the act on their first crime. So let's, let's listen to that now. Okay. Clint! What? There's some freak over here with a camera. Can I shoot him? Who the fuck is this? How the fuck am I supposed to know? I caught him filming us. You were filming us? Why? Maybe he's a photographer. Every tourist has one of those, you dumb shit. Don't call me a dumb shit, cunt face.
0: Look, both of you, shut up. You. Come here. Oh, jeez. What are you doing here? Just filling my journal. It's just a journal.
1: what? Me. You? Who the fuck are you? Let me shoot him, Clint. Yeah, so. I think that's a great scene that kind of captures all the characters that we then go on the ride with right. uh, at their first moment here. What was your process uh, just directing, I mean, obviously directing the camera and composition is one thing, and then directing actors right. and working with them is another. What was your process working with these guys?
0: Well, it was uh, enjoyable. I, I uh, You know, I think most, most young filmmakers are more intimidated by dealing with actors than they are with the technical part. I mean, the technical part, you can sort of master and understand. How to talk to actors? How to block a scene, meaning how to, how do you get the actors to move in a believable manner that's interesting? Uh, how do you communicate with actors to get the performances and the and the readings that you want? All that seems is much more nebulous. And again, that was something that I was I was uh, afraid of even in film school. I, I just didn't know. I mean, I studied some acting, but it seemed like a lot of actors subscribe to different uh, methods. And for me, it was about. Uh, Becoming uh, so familiar with the characters, knowing those, making those characters so real for me in my head, that I could explain to the actors prior to the actual shoots, this is who this person is, this is what this person wants, this is what's going on in the dynamics in the relationship, so that the actors understood fully that these people were dimensional, and so. If they knew that and I knew that, then when any time anybody slightly went off the road, it would be very easy to bring them back because we could bring them back into the reality that you'd created. Mm. I think that um, I like in directing, even regardless of whether it's the technical or the acting part. Uh, like like you're a little kid when you're a little kid playing with cars or with soldiers you have absolutely no objectivity about what you're doing. You're just inside that world. Whether you're drawing or playing Mm. with cars or building Legos, you're like inside that world. And that's sort of... I think where you need to be as a director to be so inside that thing that all an actor has to do is look at you when you are talking to them and they like sponge off mm. what the emotion That's that nice. they're supposed to be doing so I remember seeing Terry Gilliam and I don't know if you ever saw Lost in La Mancha mm. uh, but Lost in La Mancha is a great documentary which all filmmakers should see because it's all about how everything can go wrong <laughs> and it's all about Terry Gilliam trying to make uh, his version of Don Quixote mm. and Johnny Depp and he's making it and everything falls apart the weather the financing, the actors get sick and the whole movie falls apart. But there's a moment where he's directing these giants that are supposed to be stomping across the Spanish plains and he wants them to be shirtless. So these big sort of overweight giant guys and they're all wearing no shirts and they're flabby and bouncing all over the place. And Terry Gilliam, like, you know, esprit de corps, he he, like takes off his shirt and he's He's all flabby and he's in it with them, you know. And, And that always inspired me. I was like, this guy, it's not about giving a fuck what you look like or what you sound like. It's just about being inside the scene. So I can't even remember specifically how I directed those actors except to just be as in it as they were mm. so that they always felt that somebody had, you know, a handle on what, what they were supposed to be doing. Yeah. But like Melora Walters who played the, uh, the mall, you know, I'd cast her in my uh, NYU thesis oh, okay. film. So I brought her along to play, and she ended up doing, you know, she was in Boogie Nights and Magnolia and yeah, a bunch yeah, yeah. of, she she did a lot of things after that. And she was always, I always thought she was terrific. So again, you, you know, my cinematographer was my guy from yeah. film school. I cast the woman, the who was in my thesis. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend at the time, uh, Melina Williams, was Vesna, the crazy shotgun wielding. Right. She was an actor. She, she's in there. The guy, the producer's in there. Danny's brought in, right. You know, so, uh, yeah, it was very uh, it was very cozy, and I think you get that when you make an independent movie. You're able to bring the people that you enjoy working with, and you know, and I think you make a better movie that way. Yeah, you know, yes. e- even on the last thing that I did uh, for Sci-Fi Channel, I didn't really have a hand in the casting as much. The casting of the people that were pre-cast. I didn't know them. I don't have a relationship
1: with them. We don't know each other. There's no time to get to know each other. Isn't so, that it- not a nightmare. I don't want to say, but isn't it such a scary thing yeah. when you wa- when you have had the security blanket of working with great actors who you're friendly with and yeah. you know, and then you walk in and there's a blank slate of a person. Who could be a very pleasant, talented actor, and you don't know that? Yeah, and it's like this precipice. Yeah,
0: it's 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 also about. Uh, that's why I say like to, when when students ask me like, well, how should I rehearse? And I said, well, before you even rehearse or do anything, just go fucking go have coffee. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, get a beer, have coffee, and talk about anything but the fucking movie, and just get to know the person because that automatically just. Brings in a comfortability. That's what we we're talking about here. This this sort of ease that you get with working with people you know. Yeah. And it makes it the process on set so much uh, more relaxing. And and that's the whole key to acting anyway. If an actor is relaxed, right. they they give a performance. If they're uptight and they feel they're being judged by some director who they don't know, or whose personality is different from who they would elect to have a friend, then you've got like you got to get over that. And uh,
1: I interrupted you. You said you that you had those actors that were precast.
0: Oh, so I that. was just saying what the the actors like, and they were all fine, but but I had so much, uh, I had so much more fun on the days when I was working with the actors that I had worked with over many movies that you could bring in because that I could bring in and support because it just it, there's something about that energy yeah. that I, I I think is one of the best parts about making a movie. Like I don't. I don't make the movie for the produ- like I say this, and I'm not the first to say it, that mm-hmm. I suffer through production so I can edit. Interesting. You know, in other words, there are a lot of people that just go off oh, and get out there, and it's the smell of the grease paint is the action cut, and the <laughs> camera's rolling. And it's like, to me, that's like that's the necessary step to
1: making the, the final stage so of So you directing. consider making the movie in the editing room, I, not on the day? Yeah,
0: huh. I, I, I mean, I think there are, again, I'm not the first person to say this, but there, there are three times you direct. You direct in the writing. If you're not the writer, then you certainly, if you have any oversight of the script, then you're directing at that stage. You're certainly directing when you make the movie physically on set. I mean, but the third, probably the most important stage of directing is when you're in the cutting room. Uh, and if you don't participate heavily in directing the editor, then you're, I think, you're relinquishing some of the most important aspects of the... Of the
1: at a critical cl- juncture. At, yeah,
0: that's that's like... That's why, again, coming back, circling back to what I was saying before, that's what makes the paid process so difficult, because even though even by union rules, you or any rules, they give you a director's cut. It's almost like, well, you know, give little Timmy his director's <laughs> cut, and he'll go away. And so they give you that, and you have time to make it your own, but that, but then you step away and everybody else comes in and they, right. like, you know, in the days of actual film, the joke was you know, they cut it up in, into guitar picks, and that's <laughs> they can do that. You know, they they can do that. Right. So, um, but yes, I do. I always do look forward to working with people that I actors, particularly that I've worked with before. Because again, it's like, and I'm I'm guilty of the unknown thing too. I'm afraid of the unknown. There's so many. So when you work with an actor or you work with a cinematographer that where you click like friends, and it and and, you're, and the thing in your head starts to manifest you go to that back to that well every time because that's just one less th- factor
1: yes in a sea of worries and things that can go wrong Absolutely. why not like you know put as many bullets in your in your ba totally you can, yeah. totally i mean
0: that's not to say that you're not going to discover some brilliant uh, technician or actor and I, well, that's exciting too but 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 at least have enough of that like you said in your arsenal right so that you have hmm. a chance a fighting yeah. chance
1: um, were there any things that like w- This is tough because again, this was so long ago. But but, do you remember your mindset on the day, like in the middle of physical production? Do like, were you freaking out? Were you confident? Were there any fires that you had to put out?
0: Yeah. Well, I uh, I think in those days I was much. You know, I think when you're younger, you're still no matter how many short films you've made, you're still uh, insecure. You know, you're still insecure. And I think when I was making that film, I was definitely insecure. I don't know if it was the fact that I was tackling uh, my first feature in a way that was unorthodox in terms of how right. I think maybe I was worried about that. I think I was just worried about everything and f- not, not <laughs> fucking. <laughs> just everything. Just, I just didn't want to fuck it up. Sure. Um, and I think that's one of the hardest things as a director that certainly it's like language. It's like the more you speak it a language or a second language, the more fluent you get. In the beginning, there's so many things that are part of the director's job that you have to manage that if you're not really good at at compartmentalizing or micro, what's the what's the uh, what's the term? I'm blanking now. My brain's turning into mush. Where you multitask? Oh, sure. If you're not really good at multitasking, which I'm not, uh, it can start to get overwhelming. So I think I was very tense. That, that's what I remember. I'm being very tense, tense because I didn't want to fuck it up and I wanted it to be good. And I think. Um, that energy co- is communicated sometimes on set. I mean, anybody will tell you that, the, you know, it's like the, the energy the director gives off, you know, uh, either is supports by yeah. or contaminates the set. So so I'm sure there were days where my my mind being in t- too tense, you know, didn't make it as happy as it could have been. But uh, again, as I worked more and more, you you become more confident in your own abilities. And do and, you
1: think that's just a function of, like you said, putting the 10,000 hours in? Because I, I feel, maybe I'm still even there, is just, to me, half of directing is just taking your hacksaw and cutting through the fog of of fear and anxiety yeah. on set of of questioning whether you even should be there.
0: That's the ultimate. I, I don't think that goes away either. I still say, and it's funny because I, I, this last one, was, I think it was my 15th feature or something, the last one I just did. And I swear to God, it was like two days before our cameras rolled. And I turned to my wife and I said... I'm gonna fuck this up. I'm Hmm. gonna. I I said I don't know. I I don't have a handle on this. I'm gonna. I'm gonna fuck this up. And she looked and laughed and she said, "You know, you say this every every time. Every time. And it's true because I think that no matter how skilled you are." I think it's actually healthy to feel that you're going to fuck it up. If, if 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 you've seen here's another documentary, uh, Hearts of Darkness, mm. which is the Making of Apocalypse Now, which is so candid and beautiful in that respect because his wife shot the footage. Eleanor shot Francis Making Apocalypse Now. Right. And that whole the gist of that whole movie is I'm fucking it up. <laughs> like I don't know what I'm doing. I mean every 5 minutes he's like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't I can't I can't finish this thing. I I just want to like fall off a pier and break my leg and they'll And I'll get off. Yeah, I have an excuse to get off of it. So it's only the directors, I think, that genuinely. I mean, all directors have to fake it till they make it. All directors, you can't come on a set and with your finger in your in your your thumb in your mouth, going, "I don't know what I'm going to do," because they—that's the first. Everyone will desert. So you have to have a plan. You definitely have to give off more confidence than maybe you have, at least in the beginning, uh, so that people will follow you. Um, And. but the truth of the matter is, if a director genuinely believes their shit doesn't stink, that they think that they're the greatest thing in the world and that they're infallible, genuinely, generally, their shit is shit. <laughs> you know, I I think that most most decent artists have a fundamental doubt that mm. never goes away. One of my favorite stories was that uh, David Lean you know, the director of Lawrence of Arabia. When David Lean was making, getting ready to make his last movie, Nostromo, which he didn't complete because he died, he was 80-something or even 90, and they interviewed him. And they said, you know, Mr. Lean, are you... Uh, excited to be making another movie and he said absolutely because yeah, I, I feel like I'm just now starting to figure this thing out oh. and that's what Lean said at the end of his career having made Dr. Shivago and wow. Lawrence of Arabia and Passage to India and in Brief Encounter who Stanley Kubrick you know knelt at the at the foot of feet of David Lean and here's a guy saying at the end of his career I'm just sort of now like getting a handle on this thing so I, that's very encouraging yeah. um, that's to great. anybody starting out realizing that you know we all do that you know I threw up. I remember I threw up when I did the pilot, when I did the um, my first paid gig, because I remember I wasn't paid for America's 77. Sure, sure. So when I was hired to do uh, the pilot for Xena Warrior Princess. Uh, you directed the pilot. I directed the pilot wow, for the original Xena Warrior that. Princess. That was after having been hired to direct the second unit uh, action sequences on the Hercules mm-hmm. uh, TV movies. And then it became a series. And anyway, I kind of moved up on that. But, but, uh, I remember that first day we were out in the woods of uh, Auckland, New Zealand, shooting, you know, the Hercules is in the episode and he's Mm. like fighting Xena in the episode. And Hercules is running in some running sequence. And I remember getting out there and like getting all set up and I had my storyboards and I had my shot list and I had everything planned out. And just as we're getting ready to shoot, I said, excuse me, I I just need to go, (laughs) I need to work something out. And I went down the hill, like around into a ravine and just puked my guts out because I was so nervous because... I, it it mattered, you know. I mean, that's yeah. the only reason you, yeah, you, you yeah, get yeah. nervous and you doubt yourselves if it right. matters. If you're like, "Fuck it, who cares if this is shit?" Then you're gonna be calm as a cucumber. But right. but when you when you're worried about uh, doing good, uh, you're gonna that's gonna happen. Hmm. And I thought actually, it's funny. I thought that was a secret. I thought nobody had seen that. And then like I don't know, cut to like 15 years later. I'm in a used bookstore and somebody had written a book, like hercules exposed or behind ah. xena and i just you know my ego was like yeah, let, me see if I'm, let me see if i'm in here and i flipped to the page and it said oh there i am and it, it was like kevin sorbo had been quoted saying he's like poor jack he was so nervous he had to go off in the woods and puke wow. so somebody had that's so funny actually seen seen me <laughs> that's and
1: great was nice enough not to say anything. Uh, um, two more questions one is knowing that you're a professor yeah. you teach what would your advice be to someone maybe who, who isn't going to film school? Yeah, you know, what's the free film school in your mind? Oh, like, yeah, you
0: know, well, I think it exists completely now. I mean, it, it completely exists. I think that, um, uh, I think that you're in a position now if you can't afford to go to film school. And again, I was, you know, I was one of the the lucky ones that that was able to um, go to film school, but in I think that if you expose yourself to the right films, and I tell this to my students, I'm, I, I i swear, I go to class, I, I, I'm in class all the time, I'm constantly referencing movies as I am here today, and the requisite films that I feel that I came to film school having already seen because I'm just a film lover are missing, that mm-hmm. they have not seen the important films, and it's not even the important films, it's the films that are going to make you a better filmmaker. It's like if you are a writer, you read great literature so that you can, if you just read right. junk, you're only gonna, you know, right. and the same thing with if you're a chef, you know, you're gonna want to consume fine foods to make, fine. so there's this, now with, with so many lists available of the, of the necessary films, and, and even the ones that are marginally important, you can expose yourself to, that's the first thing, it's just watching enough film, uh, getting your hand on as many, um, commentary tracks, as many, um, Oral inter- interviews with directors. I learned more from interviews with directors. Books that are kind of like this one. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. It's like you can learn so much from a director's commentary. There. There is a great series called um, where it's directors on, on themselves. It's like um, you know. It's 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 Cronenberg uh, on Cronenberg, Scorsese on Scorsese, Lee on Lee. On on that, those that series of books is just or just interviews like we're doing now with exactly these kinds of questions of how they achieve this with a commentary track if you're a fan of you know Paul Thomas Anderson and you listen to a commentary track of Magnolia or Boogie Nights you're going to learn not only how he did certain things but what but who were the filmmakers that influenced him mm. and that should lead you to those filmmakers Down a trail, yeah. yeah and that that can be an education in and of itself and i think that the only thing that film school gave me was the discipline through assignments to keep making more right. films so right. i think that all you need to do for yourself if you're not in film school, is to create your own discipline where you consume as much good cinema and and books on cinema as you can, and at the same time set a goal for yourself to constantly put yourself behind the camera and make not a feature, but just make one small short after another. Because I guarantee you, it's like you will improve. Right. You will just get better and better and better. And that's the that is the trick: is exposure to sit to great film. Understanding and dissecting it as you watch it, not just as a viewer, but to look at it and go, wait a minute, why is that shot affecting me? What What's the lens on that shot? Is the camera moving? Is it dollying or is it zooming? Like taking it apart like a scientist and then just putting yourself in a position where you make thing after thing after thing, just like a second language, you become more fluent.
1: I was going to ask you, you mentioned it, do, do you find yourself sometimes watching films for pleasure versus watching films kind of for homework or for...
0: They were, Do you it know what made, I mean? yeah. I, it's funny because my, some people that, that's, I've gotten that. Uh, it's no, your question raises a good question, which is uh, there, it's always pleasure for me. Sure. It's always pleasure. It's more pleasurable looking at it with one eye on uh, how it was accomplished or why is it working for me or what is, is this where the music is coming in? Like, just understanding things like, like I learned more about how to spot, like, learning how to spot a movie for, for, for a music score. you know, like when I was first making my student films, mm-hmm. I was like, well, where do you put the music? I don't know it's dramatic here, put some dramatic mm-hmm. action here. But if you watch a movie and like you just pay attention to when the cues start and when they end, you begin to realize that there is a there is a process for that too. and um, but it's always pleasurable. Mm-hmm. I'm always I've always managed to have like a schizophrenic mind where I can watch a movie and enjoy it. It never ruins it. Like that's the that's I think is the classic mistake, which is, well, you can't you shouldn't look too much deeply into it because it ruins the experience. It's like, no, if you're a filmmaker, you're deconstructing it and enjoying it. Like when I see a movie for the first time, just like I'm sure, I'm not deconstructing it. I'm watching right. it you're because I just yeah. want it to be in, I want to be entertained. Afterwards, when I watch it for the second, third, or however many dozens of times, it's going to be still if it's still good, it's still right. gonna entertain, but it's right. gonna be more uh, it's going to be a, a deeper experience because now you're you're going through an analytical process. Right. So um, it remains so to that to this day, and that's why some people say that Kubrick was actually uh, more important for filmmakers than he was for the <laughs> public because filmmakers could appreciate what he was doing technically, right. uh, whereas the public is like doesn't mm. doesn't care <laughs> right. as much. Yeah. You know, huh. they just want the story to work. You right.
1: know? Uh, awesome, man! Thank you. Well, let's last us cu- last last question question is this my unscripted question so i'm going to ask you a question via a famous movie quote you can answer the question any way you want as it pertains to the film you made you know adhv okay uh so use the question kind of as a word association jumping off point to think about your film in a new way uh and we'll see what happens okay so the question i chose for you today is from timothy finn mcjr from the film diner okay And the question is, do you ever get the feeling that there's something going on that we don't know about? (laughs) Do you ever get the feeling that there's something going on that we don't know about? Uh, That's great. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned diner.
0: Uh, Love diner. Um, Yes. I've always felt that there's a huge part of this. I don't know if I'm answering. I'm sure I'm answering this incorrectly. Any way you want. Yes. I feel that that there's, particularly in Hollywood, that there's this other thing going on that governs why things happen and, and, and what makes them happen. And, and, and I feel like the Washington's the same way. It's like, you get this Mm -hmm. impression of how it should work. And then there's this other thing that's going on. It's almost like Dave Chappelle said in that famous bit, when he, when he turned down the gazillion dollars, he says, he he was saying to the audience, he said, you guys think you're white, but when you get offered, you know, $500 million, they open up these doors and you start (laughs) to see these where the real white people are. (laughs) And, uh, I do, I do feel that, uh, That there are forces that are bigger that decide, that have a hand in deciding fates, which I think in relation to ADHV, America's Deadliest Home Video, is it was probably good that I made my first feature independently Mm. because then, in a way, that that showed me a way to creative control and creative satisfaction, which is to me most important. More important than the legitimacy of being a Hollywood director, more important than the money is that if you're an artist of any kind you have a thing in your mind that you want to get out and if you can get that out as unencumbered as possible then it doesn't that's the goal at least that's yeah. the goal for me so um, it's nice to make your money make money uh, in the, your in your vocation of choice and it's certainly nice to be legitimized but truthfully it's funny i was never more happy like on the on the professional gigs where i've been hired I was never more happy than in the moment I was told I had the job, hmm. as opposed to it wasn't like this because that was that tick that box like oh cool you know like Universal Studios thinks I'm good and and I got hired by Sam Raimi screw and, you dad yeah yeah and I I made it but 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 I realized for myself that the satisfaction actually came from something much simpler and much it was inside me as opposed to the right. external validation.
1: So that's great. I don't know. That's that's my. That's a great answer. Um, All right, speed round. Then we're done. Okay. Don't think, just answer.
0: Oh God! Really? Okay. Well, you can think. All right,
1: I'm gonna. I'll cut it down so it looks like you just answered. Okay, fine. (laughs) Is there a movie quote that you use in everyday conversation?
0: Uh, it's removing a quote I meant you use in everyday conversation everyday conversation uh, funny I just mentioned a quote like this uh, there's a quote from Sunset Boulevard which I'm sure I'm getting wrong but Joe Giddes played by William Holden uh, is in a meeting trying to get a job as a writer and somebody says hey didn't you write that movie that would t- takes place in pioneer times on the, on the covered wagons and he goes he goes yeah but you wouldn't recognize it because by the time it came out it all took place on a torpedo boat <laughs> which is to your point about right uh or well, our point about people taking shit away from you and making it whatever they want. That's
1: funny. Uh, Desert Island movie.
0: Oh, good question. I guess it would have to be Veracruz. Funny, mm. that's the first movie that comes to mind. Veracruz, directed by Robert Aldrich, 1954. Uh, first super Western, uh, really responsible for Sergio Leone's uh, films. He saw that movie, and it was really ahead of its time, and Sam Peckinpah. So Veracruz, mm. which is kind of a black comedy action uh, Western. Nice.
1: What's your go-to item at craft service? Uh,
0: It should be something healthy, but it never is. Uh, I don't know why it comes to me because I'm not this kind of person. I would probably say like a red vine. Oh, you're a red vine guy. I don't know why. I just thought thought of that, but I I was once on the set of The Expendables, just as an aside.
1: No big deal. And
0: No, but I was on this set because my my friend, Eric Roberts, played the bad guy, so he invited me to come down to New Orleans. And I've never seen a more decadent mm. craft. I mean, it was like it was like two aisles of Whole Foods. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was like people were wow. like going down with like shopping carts. It was like it was a, yeah. So I've never had that personally. That's my, the, my, that's but,
1: that mean that's when you know you've made it. Yeah, when it's, when it's a Whole Food style Uh Dream actor to work with.
0: Oh, you know what? I don't know. I don't know who's. You know what? I'm such an old movie buff. Most of the people they're all dead. They're all dead. Uh, Fair enough. I you know. I Probably went in the 70s, if I had been making movies in the 70s, I would have liked to make a movie with Elliot Gould. Mm,
1: nice. He's still alive. Yeah, I guess yeah. I could still make a movie Good with answer. Elliot Gould. Last one. Uh, underrated film that everyone should check out.
0: Underrated. Well, there are a lot of them. Um, I would say, God, I wish I had more time to answer this question, but the one that's coming to mind was a big influence on me. Uh, was a movie called Miracle Mile. Hmm. Miracle Mile, which is directed by Steve Day Jarnett. Uh, who you probably don't know, but it stars Anthony Edwards. And great movie with this incredible premise that today would be considered a high-concept movie, but it's a guy who comes to LA, he's a musician, and he accidentally answers a payphone, which appears to be somebody from a missile silo. And this is, again, this mm. is this is at a period in the late 80s where this was nuclear threat, was yeah. still a possibility. And he gets a th- call in the middle of the night saying, the Russian, like basically the Russians have launched and we're gonna in in 10 hours the world is over and it's what does he do Hmm. and it's one of these movies that manages to be both funny and dark and genuinely dramatic and emotional all in one movie and uh, and I think it just came out on Blu-ray it's definitely definitely one to check out that's
1: great Mm -hmm. Jack that's it you made it Okay. Thanks wow, so thank much you. for talking, man. Well, I'm sorry if I was a little uh, long-winded. No, not at all. I, I
0: tend to be. I, uh, pre- I appreciate uh, no. Questions. It was it
1: was very illuminating. So, if people want to see America's deadliest home, deadliest home video, yeah. can they see it anywhere online? Well, that's or funny. It's funny or... that
0: we're doing this now because in May uh, the movie is being re-released on DVD. Perfect. Uh, it never actually made it to DVD. It came out on VHS. Oh wow! Uh, in the day, and now it's. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, what does John Huston say thing about quotes in, in Chinatown? He says, that in, in time, politi- politicians and whores get respect. <laughs> well, America's Deadly's own video, apparently, because it's Got it was respect. there at the beginning, as, right. is getting released. So, That's in, So in May, it comes out. Okay. Um, and uh, Fangoria so, has always been a huge, uh, Mike Gingold That Fangoria
1: has always been a huge supporter of the film. So... I, there are a couple of articles now about its Great. release coming so up so they can find that online and then uh, anything else you want to plug anything like current coming up or? no
0: just I'm just doing the same thing I just you know the next you know I, as I said some guy who kills people was probably the film that I'm I'm most proud of in recent years and I'm just looking forward to the next Great. independent one where they don't fuck with me <laughs> <laughs> so.
1: and uh, are you online anywhere Twitter uh, Tumblr, I, or Facebook? Am, I
0: am Twitter Facebook anybody who ever wants to get a hold of me and like I said I am a I am a, a professor so I, any 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 filmmakers out there who and this is even more important for filmmakers who aren't in film school. Uh, if you ever want any uh, advice or even rec- recommendations for films to look out for inspiration, feel free to reach out to me.
1: There you go. What's your What's your Twitter Twitter uh, handle?
0: Uh, Twitter handle is uh, tw- What is my Twitter handle? Jesus, I'm going to be me, on point, Jack. Do you this know I, forget, I don't even know what my Twitter <laughs> handle is. You know what I mean? Just Facebook. <laughs> right. Okay, great. Uh,
1: well, I'm at Ethan Cushing on Twitter. The podcast is at First Feature Pod. And if you want to get in touch, email us at myfirstfeaturepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.